If you're on social media or just have an interest in dog training and behavior in general, you might have seen the controversy surrounding a research article that was published around the end of April, so just a couple of months before the release of this podcast episode. The paper is titled Ancestry Inclusive Dog Genomics Challenges Popular Breed Stereotypes. It's a bit of a mouthful, but the short summary of controversy is that many in the mainstream media or on social media were saying that breed totally matters, while others were saying, see, breed doesn't matter at all. So the first thing that came to my mind was, let's get one of the authors of the paper onto the podcast. And the next thing that came to my mind was, let's get Kim Brophy to be my guest host on this episode, as she is someone that has talked so much about breed and behavior tendencies in her past appearances as a guest on this show. And so I brought Jessica Heckman, who is one of the authors, and Kim Brophy together. And let's just say these two brilliant minds do not disappoint in this episode as we take a deep dive into not only dispelling some of the misunderstandings from the research, but also into genetics and aggression in general. And if you are working with aggression cases or plan on taking aggression cases as a trainer, or maybe you're even struggling with your own dog, we have a variety of educational opportunities for you, including the upcoming Aggression in Dogs conference happening from September 30th through October 2nd, 2022 in Providence, Rhode Island, with both in-person and online options. You can also learn more about the Aggression in Dogs Master Course, which is the most comprehensive course available anywhere in the world for learning how to work with and help dogs with aggression issues by going to aggressivedog.com. So welcome to the show, Kim. Oh, thank you, Mike. I appreciate you having me. And welcome to you, Jessica. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So we're going to dive right into what is the main talking point for this episode, which is this recent, somewhat recent, uh, research article that's come out and caused a lot of controversy in the dog training world, as well as in other places. People are talking about dog behavior and genetics uh, in the Journal of Science. Um, and I'll read the study name for you, Ancestry Inclusive Dog Genomics Challenges Popular Breed Stereotypes. So right away, kind of a lengthy title for the layperson like me that might be looking into reading research and articles. And what we saw come out on in some of the articles that we're talking about this paper, as well as the in social media and in the dog training community and the conversations are some of these absolute statements such as breed matters or breed doesn't matter or based only on 9%, you know, all behaviors based 9% on genetics. So these really absolute statements and lots of arguments and lots, I think, misunderstanding. So um, I'm really excited to have both of you on because we're going to unpack a lot of the misconceptions as well as dive deeper into, you know, the theme of the show, which is aggression and agonistic behaviors and, and unpacking that part of the study a little bit more. So um, let's jump right off into this conversation. What... If you had now, I know it's been a couple of months and you've, you guys have both seen the conversations that have flourished in social media. What are some of your takeaways now if you were to say, okay, we've seen this, the the popular opinion skewing in one direction or another. What are some of your main thoughts or top of mind thoughts right now based on that? I feel like a lot of people sort of came in hot when they first read some of the coverage of the paper. And after having conversations about what the paper actually says and actually doesn't say, there were a lot of people who then were like, oh, well, that makes sense. I mean, it's there's a lot in it and, and it's a lot of very complex concepts. And so it's a hard paper to boil down to one or two sentences. And, and yet the media tried to do that. <laughs> um, and so I think that once people were able to grapple with the complexity of it a little bit more. A lot of people found it a lot less controversial than they had initially thought that it was. There are certainly still people who disagree with some of the things that it says, and that's that's fine. I think that's very understandable. But I feel like for the most part, a lot of the controversy did end up just being that it's hard to sit and walk through sort of what the paper actually did and actually says. And once you have been supported through doing that because I don't expect people to be able to read this very technical paper and really get what it's about sort of without some support. But once supported in doing that, I think most people were able to say, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. That's actually not hugely surprising. 
What about you, Kim? You, I know, also had some conversations about the paper and, and some of your students had questions. And I saw some of the, you know, uh, misunderstandings also come through in a lot of conversations. So what are your thoughts now, uh, now that yeah. you've had these? I, I really, um, I, I've had a very similar experience to what Jessica just described. I think that headlines like dog breed doesn't affect behavior, according to new genetic research, were a big part of the problem. Um, you know, we just had a chat a few minutes ago on a Facebook Live, and we were talking about the problem of being in a world with sound bites and, you know, headlines and um, clickbait, frankly. I mean, you know, uh, these are all businesses, um, the media's businesses. So the temptation to oversimplify for public appeal of click on their article as opposed to someone else's is very real. Um, and I think the short term problems were largely just from all that misunderstanding, you know, the immediate kind of fallout and then the heated uh, conversations that were occurring among professionals. I think that a lot of that was just misunderstanding, people not having had the, the time or the support, as Jessica mentioned, to really appreciate all of what was in the study. I think the, the concern was among many of the colleagues I was speaking with is that the headlines were dangerous in terms of the implications, um, that people would run with that and that that would be a mess we'd be cleaning up for decades um, when we've been working really hard to just help people understand that, you know, there there are certain things genetically that matter. And then a whole lot of things that people think about genetics don't matter. And of course, genetics aren't predictive and it's super complicated like everything else. And so I think avoiding the temptation to oversimplify is important and putting things in a greater context is always important. I'm so appreciative of the cleaning up that Jessica has already done, and I'm grateful mm -hmm. to be here today to get a chance to talk with her more and hear about her further thorough analysis, which is going to be released, and uh, you know to be able to share that with my colleagues and peers. Yeah, and I want to echo those sentiments too because I was feeling really badly when I was seeing, you know, at least when people were kind of getting after the media about, okay, these clickbait headlines are not good. But then I saw some attacks on, you know, Jessica or right. Eleanor and their team, and I, I'm like, this is ridiculous. You know, I can't imagine how they're feeling. You know, let's just pour seven or eight years and thousands of hours of research and work into this project, and all of a sudden, you know, now we're getting blamed for like taking you know, dog behavior back decades or something like mm -hmm. ridiculous statements like that. So um, shout out to you guys, Eleanor, Jessica, the whole team, IWBC, everybody who's involved with the project uh, for all the hard work they put into it, because it's just, you know, this science is what we need mm -hmm. to, to further our conversations, not take it back. Thank you, Mike. Right? Yeah. So, um, so let's, let's further on the conversation down into the agonistic behavior that we kind of wanted to talk about as well. So uh, Jessica, take me through kind of that part of the study, as well as, you know, the questions that were asked and, you know, and why it may not matter, or maybe it does. Yeah. So the study collected a lot of behavioral data from dogs, and it also collected a lot of genetic data from dogs. And we did some analyses just on the behavioral data. And then we did other analyses on the behavioral data with the genetic data. So to start out, I'm just going to talk about the behavioral data and sort of put the, the DNA stuff aside for a minute. So we had this have, this site, darwinsarc.org, which is still collecting data, by the way, if people are interested in going and participating in that. And owners of dogs and we allowed anyone who was interested and and owned a dog to come participate owners of dogs were asked to answer uh, more than a hundred survey questions and we got those questions from pre-existing validated surveys for the most part because the the expertise of Carlson lab is not in developing surveys and we knew that. Uh, so we went and found surveys that, that were already out there about canine personality. There are a few extra questions that we added in, things about uh, morphology, like ear shape and coat length and coat color, and also a few questions that IAABC helped develop, which were supposed to be, um, we asked them to help us find questions about behaviors that dogs would probably not have been trained to do. So they were questions that like, does your dog like to lie on its stomach frog style? Does he turn around a lot before lying down? Does he cock his head to the side? Things like that as just sort of as as questions to just out of curiosity to see, you know, could we find a, a genetic signal there in things that probably no one has trained their dog to do. Uh, but most of the survey questions and certainly the ones that we're interested in today came from validated studies that were written and tested by other laboratories. 
and this this particular part was a large part of what I worked on. I took the large number of answered questions and ran it through what's called a factor analysis, uh, basically to make it easier to handle. So rather than having to handle more than 100 questions, you ask the computer to say, which of these questions seem to group together, which seem to be related based on how people answer the question. So the computer obviously doesn't understand what the question is about, but it can see that or we'll say dogs, that if the dog answers the question, uh, you know, this particular question in this way, then it's very likely that they will answer this other question in, in this other particular way. And so the computer then can see these questions seem to be about something similar and these other questions seem to be about something similar. And we call those factors. So I came up with um, more than eight, but we ended up going with the top eight factors. And so when you hear factor, you could just think group of questions. So the computer presented these groupings and then humans sat down and looked at the groupings and tried to figure out what the factors were actually about. It was, it was pretty straightforward to take a glance at them and see what we, anyone would sort of understand what they were about, but then to, to put the actual names on the factors that would be descriptive and not misleading and yet not too long so they could fit in figures, that was actually really hard. And we worked on that a lot. So to give you sort of a flavor, uh, factor one, which is the factor with the, the most variance in it, we named human sociability. So some of those questions are things about whether the dog is fearful towards unfamiliar people, whether the dog is shy, whether the dog likes to be approached or hugged, uh, whether it walks away or avoids being patted. So questions like that. And of those eight factors, the one that I think we're going to be the most interested in today is factor five, agonistic threshold. And I think the word aggression is in every question in this factor. Uh, we didn't we really didn't want to have the factor just be called aggression. We didn't want it to be saying that the dog is aggressive or not aggressive. We can, I think you two probably understand really well why with, that's a, a term that we struggled with, but we didn't want people labeling their dogs that way. Uh, but we did say agonistic threshold with the idea that this factor probably describes something about how likely a dog is to use aggression to solve any problems that he has. So, yeah, let me pause there and see if you guys have questions at that point. No, it's an excellent breakdown so far of what we're getting into with the the uh, factor analysis. And so, Kim, what do you think are, you know, what are your thoughts in your mind swirling around when you hear agonistic and aggressive and everything Jessica was just talking about and how that would apply to the lens you're looking through as well? Yeah, I think, you know, this is so interesting and, and it's so fun, Jessica, to hear you describe that and to be looking at, you know, this chart together and talking about it and thinking about the kinds of answers that I would expect these questions to yield. And um, and then, of course, I get excited about prospects for other studies and questions down the road as well again. But, you know, uh, one of the filters that I'm always kind of looking at things through from that ethological lens is um, whether we might expect something to be different between breed groups based on selective pressure or the absence of selective pressure. And so in looking at these sample questions in the agonistic threshold, most of these things have little to no selective selective pressure, like intentional selective pressure. And what I mean by that is that someone wouldn't breed a dog to be aggressive when nervous or fearful. <laughs> someone wouldn't have bred a dog to be aggressive uh, towards veterinarians when they go to the, to the hospital. You know, you might expect there would be certain breeds where something like barrier aggression, however, would be more prevalent in certain breed groups lines because that there has been some selective pressure on that for the sake of guarding territories and properties and things like that. And, uh, you know, things even like whether a dog becomes aggressive when they become aroused is something else that we might expect would have some indirect selective pressure on it, um, only uh, because certain types of dogs, of course, we wanted them to be able to engage really quickly in agonistic behavior when they hit a certain level of arousal, even if otherwise they didn't have much of a reason. And so, you know, looking at it like, you know, the, the kinds of things that humans have bred dogs to do over the years, um, largely that being selective pressure on predation and various changes to that and those motor patterns and then also things like intrusion and then um, controlling movement and so you know some of these things we wouldn't think about in the strictest sense or definition as aggression and I know Mike you and I have gone back and forth about like where do we put predation because 
predation isn't technically aggression from a certain perspective, but definitely those on the receiving end of predation feel that it's quite aggressive. And so I, I think a lot of the behaviors that the public describes as aggressive are rooted in something that is predatory. And even herding behavior, which is a modified predation selection, definitely can be experienced by people as uh, aggression, even if it is just kind of a misfiring of controlling the movements of other organisms based on the selective pressure for herding. So I I think it's really interesting what it yields and it makes me want to know more. It makes me wonder if we went to kind of like next level questions about contexts and, you know, things about the, the sudden movements of others. Like that would be just an interesting question to have thrown in there. Like I, I bet we would see some differences between the different groups of dogs depending on that selective pressure for noticing sudden environmental contrast, for example. But it, it's really fascinating. And, and I think it also like we can look at this a number of different ways and say, you know, we have to really be willing to get into the weeds of the complexity of the kinds of questions we ask and the kinds of answers that those are going to yield. Um, make sure that we don't overgeneralize things like a lot of the studies historically about dog aggression have been like, are breeds more aggressive than others, mm-hmm. which is the wrong question to be asking. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, we're going to get the wrong answers if that's the question we're asking. Because what do we actually mean by that? Like, if we're talking about the context of predation versus the context of territory protection, we're going to see one group of dogs be much more, quote, aggressive predatorily than another in a certain set of conditions. And then another group show up with more quote, aggressive behavior in this set of circumstances and not the other, again, based on those selective pressures. So I think it's so exciting that we are starting to ask these questions and starting to get into those weeds as an industry and as a culture. Um, And I'm really excited for where the future takes us. My God, Mike, do not ask me another question because I have so much I want to say already. (laughs) Um, Go right ahead. (laughs) Yeah, I was trying to remember. Okay, so Yeah, I think that is very insightful, Kim. And I also want to back up for a second and give people an overview about what Kim's talking about. So the one of the analyses that we did in the paper was to look at whether there were significant differences in how dogs scored on these factors uh, between breeds and then also between breed groups. We saw a larger signal between groups than we did between breeds, but we saw very little signal in the agonistic threshold between breeds or between breed groups. And I think... Kim is right on when she says that the things that people would be selecting for in breeds or breed groups are the kinds of uh, quote unquote aggression that people would be selecting for in those groups are not what are covered in agonistic threshold here. And I just want to take a minute to tell people how to get at the list of actual questions, because I know that's going to be interesting to people. And it it was amusing as we were starting this to do this interview, I was like, oh, I should pull those questions up. And I was surprised how long it took me, who knows the paper pretty well, to find them as part of the paper. So the way to find the actual list of questions is at the very end of the paper, there's a link to supplemental materials. And um, that gives you a link to another freely available PDF to download. And on page 77 of that PDF, table S4, is factors discovered from Darwin's ARC survey data. And then page 78, that table continues down, page 78, factor five is agonistic threshold. And it has all of the sort of eight or nine questions that got grouped by the computer into agonistic threshold. And as I'm looking through them, I think almost all of them are, I would describe as, all except for two of them, I would describe as being about the dog being anxious, shy, afraid, nervous, having some kind of issue that they're using aggression to try to increase space, right? So there's a lot of like, if they're nervous or fearful, if there's perceived threats, um, if people are unfamiliar, but I'm just sort of looking through, there's a question about whether they guard coveted items, right? So that's resource guarding, which I don't, Kim can answer whether there's any, any way that anyone would be selecting for resource guarding. And there's barrier aggression, which Kim also mentioned. So, None of the others are things that I think people would be intentionally selecting for in a particular group. I would hope that breeders who are trying to breed good family pets, which is mostly what we had in this study, Mm -hmm. I'd hope that breeders who are trying to breed good family pets would be selecting against all of these things, Mm -hmm. right? So I would, I certainly wouldn't expect anyone to be intentionally breeding dogs to be aggressive at the veterinarians. 
I would hope that if a breeder had a dog who was aggressive at the veterinarians, they would choose not to breed that dog. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that we would see a big difference across breeds there because I would hope that in most breeds, that would just be a given that that, that would be something that you're breeding for. Now, not everybody does prioritize that and that's sort of a, a separate conversation, but I wouldn't expect that to show up as a breed difference. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think, Kim? I, this is just so fun and interesting. Um, I, you know, I was just, I completely agree with everything you said. And I, I love these weeds we're playing in here. Um, I was thinking <laughs> about, um, you know, your question about the resource guarding, like that is such a good, important question. And even within the specificity of the selective pressure of that, there's these, well, but there's these caveats. It's always more complicated than we think. So for instance, the group that has the strongest selective pressure for resource guarding would be the, the guardians. Um, however, it would not be just across the board, like we wanted the guardians to be resource guarders of everything towards everybody. Um, actually, you were going to have lower social conflict, agonistic behavior between uh, members of their own social group in many cases with the guardians, particularly livestock guardians, because of the kinds of conditions in which we needed those dogs to work. You can't have them, you know, biting your sheep's face off when they get near their food bowl, when they're eating in the pasture, when you bring them their dinner at the end of the day, you know? And so th the minutiae really matters. And we we're learning about what's under the hood genetically, but we're at the beginning of even b discovering any of it, like what is actually operating there. And so what creates a perceived threat that would then be something that we would have had a selective pressure act upon in a guardian breed who also just by default and Catherine Lord, who is also one of the authors on this study has done some work on this, but the lower dopamine in the guardian breeds as well. And so if you have lower dopamine, even if you have been selected for resource guarding in certain conditions, you're not going to be the one that's flying off the handle at the drop of a hat over someone's drop cracker too. So the, the presentation of the behavior would be qualified by the conditions in which we might expect the behavior to occur. And, and that's why, you know, I, I continue to try to encourage all of us to, to be willing to have these really muddy, complicated conversations about questions, because if we really want to get closer to the truth, we have to be comfortable with all those weeds and the minutia. Yeah, I think part of what you're talking about there is what my particular passion is, which is what is the biology of it? What is mm -hmm. going on in the brain? What is going on in the hormonal system mm -hmm. that is making dogs or people behave in particular ways. And for me, the reason I was involved in this research personally was that that was what I wanted to find out. Mm -hmm. um, and so we may not have gotten at that for agonistic threshold, but for one of the other factors, human sociability. So how much dogs like being around people mm -hmm. or dislike being around people. When we took those questions and we compared them to the individual dog's DNA sequences, we did find a region of the DNA that seemed to be associated with either really enjoying being around people or not enjoying being around people, which, which sets up hopefully future research to go sort of dig deeper into that region of the DNA and say, well, what are the genes in this region? Can we try to figure out what exactly is, you know, is there a mutation in here that is looks one way in dogs that really like people, a different way in dogs that don't really like people, and then once we can find that and we know what gene it's in, then we'll know a little bit more about how that gene functions in the brain. It just it opens up these avenues for trying to better understand the biology of behavior, which is very much for me the reason to do this study. And I feel like it is not something that the press coverage emphasized. I've, I find that very exciting, right? Mm -hmm. I have um, a question about that. Yeah, so yeah, in terms sure. of the dog sociability, was the region um, correlated at all to chromosome seven and the research that has been done with Williams-Buren syndrome? Were you finding I that it was playing off of? Think, I think if it were in that region, I would remember. So this is not my part of the paper. Kathleen Morrill, who's the first author, was the one who did this part of the paper. It's called a GWAS. Mm -hmm. um, and she'd be probably able off the top of her head to just say... I can't remember, but I think if it were in the Williamsburg region, I would know. Okay. Like, I, I feel like that that I would have been like, like, we would have been talking about that. That mm -hmm. would have been big news. Yeah. I was just thinking that would be, you know, really interesting. And if it's not, and it's also really interesting if it's not. Like, so what yeah. else is operating and what are other factors genetically? I mean, there's going to be a lot of regions, right? Right. <laughs> there's going to be a lot yeah. of regions. So, yeah. 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 
So I'm sitting here with my bucket of popcorn listening to you guys, and you can continue. <laughs> just, you I think know, so, we've wound down here for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, you know, because I'm definitely just on the bunny slope of ethology and just trying on my ski boots for genetics. So I'm, you know, definitely, I, I think what would be helpful for the listeners if I maybe just give my interpretation of what you guys were talking about and kind of like stepping back and going back to our initial part of the conversation was the misinterpretations of the study. But I think it's really important to define the definitions, you know, so when people say aggression, you know, or aggressive dog, you're immediately labeling the dog. So I love mm-hmm. that the questions in this, in the study were looking at behavior, you know, using the terms like shows or becomes aggressive or shows aggressive behavior and using those terms because it's, it, can quickly become this absolute rabbit hole, right? Where it's just, it's all absolutes. The dog's aggressive or not, or, you know, so identifying those behaviors. Because when you start to talk, look into what Kim was talking about in terms of what we've selected for, for aggressive behaviors, and then you look at the survey questions, many of them are actually looking at the underlying emotion that is motivating or fueling that aggressive response. So when we're selecting for dogs, we can argue that we're not necessarily selecting for, I want a nervous dog. I want a fearful dog. And if you look at, I'm going through the questions here now, uh, you know, I want. Hopefully the opposite, right? Hopefully yeah, people are exactly, selecting for, I, I exactly. don't want, yeah. And so that brings up the broader view of, again, aggressive behaviors. It's not always motivated by fear. It's not always motivated by, you know, nervousness and air quotes. It's often for the dogs that we're talking about for the selective pressure is dogs that aren't experiencing those emotions. And we can argue in some cases, we can go back down that predation rabbit hole that Kim and I go down all the time. <laughs> the dogs are having a good time. It's a totally different aspect from a biological perspective, right? Jessica is the what's happening in the brain, what's happening with hormones when you're looking at it from that angle. So, so that's anyways, my limited takeaway from the conversation. So Let's let's actually go into defining those terms a little bit more because I know that some of the controversy too was in the definitions of the behavior. So we've heard personality used in the study or behaviors or motor patterns. So can we jump into that conversation since we have Kim here as the ethologist as well? The difference between when they're talking about motor patterns and, and personality, for instance, and because they were used synonymously in the arguments that I saw online, but mm, they're actually two very distinct different things. Yeah. Well, maybe I can say what I mean by personality, and then Kim can say what she means by motor patterns. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So by personality, I mean a set of behaviors that are relatively consistent over time. So if the dog has a personality trait, you're going to be able to see that repeatedly, you know, today, two weeks from today six months from today, the dog will mainly respond to a particular stimulus in a similar way. But of course, there will be days when the dog is having a a crappy day or something and will respond to the stimulus a bit differently, which is why it's important to sort of check in multiple times. So it's very hard to see personality through a single snapshot. It's sort of important to talk to someone who knows the animal well over time. The other thing about personality is it's not entirely fixed. Certainly one of the things that can change it is trauma. Another thing that can change personality traits is long-term persistent behavioral modification, as you both know. So when I say it's consistent over time, I sort of mean without other input, you're going to keep seeing the same trait. But it certainly can be changed, but it takes either something really big like a trauma to change it or something really persistent, like long-term behavioral modification. So that's what I mean by personality. Hmm. I love that. And the first thing that it made me think of, um, because, you know, again, right, we're, as, as we're growing and we're learning more, it seems like we have to get increasingly comfortable being uncomfortable. And sometimes things on the surface look really contradictory. One of the first things that that made me think of as you were describing that, which I I found working as a behavior consultant for over two decades now, I, I consistently see this reflected in my clientele as well, is that oftentimes personality and the modal action patterns conflict and they they often do they they might actually almost seem to be um antithetical to each other you know so you might have actually a very stable personality in a dog that when presented with a very specific releasing stimuli exhibits a behavior that seems to completely contradict everything that we know about the stability of that dog's personality in all of the other conditions right and i think that's one of the caveats that we're trying to help people 
people appreciate is that, you know, genetics do not, well, they're never predictive, but they, they have very little bearing in many ways on personality. You know, it's the personality is the combination of all these factors. And so, yes, of course, genetics is going to influence that, whether it's through play style or sociability um, with humans or other dogs, things like that. So it, it flavors it, if you will, or has the potential to flavor it. But it's not going to have the stronger predictive value that something like where we have very concentrated selective pressure for things like modal action patterns, we would expect them to. And so if, if we say have a dog that has intact predation genetically um, and we present them uh, with the cat that it lives with inside the house, getting along fine, snuggling together on the bed, watching TV, but then suddenly suddenly the dog gets out of the house and that same cat streaks across the street, the dog might actually potentially predate that cat before it even knows what's happened because of the interaction between the releasing stimuli of the cat and the modal action patterns. And, you know, it that can k- kind of shock us. And I think part of the message that we're trying to get across from kind of the legs initiative perspective is that, you know, I feel like so many dogs get labeled as broken, pathologized, even euthanized, surrendered to shelters, etc., because they exhibit a behavior that is along the lines of those accidental releasing um, stimuli and the modal action patterns that humans have historically bred them for. And then horribly, the conclusion of the family is, oh my gosh, my dog is universally aggressive and I'm finding it out. And now he has a taste for blood. And so the cost of not talking about this minutia and these differences it is huge for dogs. And I, I think a lot of the folks that want to say genetics have no bearing on behavior are very much in all the best intentions defending the interest of dogs because they don't want them to be inappropriately labeled. But we really have the same goals. I don't either. I want a dog to be understood when that something like that happens for them. And there's a behavior that overrides the personality because of the depths of its sources and the generations of reinforcement history, that they, it doesn't mean that they're sweet little baby that was cuddling with the cat in the house an hour before is suddenly a murderous fool and is going to attack their children. They, they need to understand the specificity of the relationship between those kinds of things. I feel like then people would be better prepared to make different decisions in terms of management and, and things like that, just kind of cautioning against those likelihoods. Yeah, 100%. And one of the things I was thinking when I was talking about my definition of personality also is that these behavioral traits that you see are in particular environmental situations. Mm-hmm. And so if you change the dog's environment, you may suddenly see very different behavioral traits, which is similar to what you were saying, Kim, I know you were talking about specific stimuli rather than changes in environment. But I think that's sort of similar to what you're saying that you can think that you know a dog's personality, but if you expose it to a new environment or a very new stimulus, you might see something new and you might've assumed that that stimulus wasn't a new thing for the dog. Mm-hmm but it may have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and I think those are the kinds of things that, you know, I'm hoping that we can all continue to learn more about, especially in work like what you're doing with the Functional Dog Collaborative. I mean, that is such a well of knowledge um, that we can be pulling from, from breeders that have, you know, in some cases been breeding certain dogs for, you know, generations and have extensive experience um, working with that particular type of dog and can help us understand kind of the minutia from their perspective and, and their experiences for what kinds of things um, they notice those differences in. So, you know, something as small as whether your dog is standing at the front door when guests walk in or you simply, you know, put them on the other side of the baby gate, have a guest come in, sit down on the couch and then let the dog in can be the most important game changing environmental antecedent arrangement adjustment that will matter for some breeds and breed groups and won't matter for others, you know, and it can be profound, right? Because the interpretation of like a potential intruder is something that is selectively bred into certain types of dogs and not others. And so even if our dog is going to be uh, in the standard deviation, as opposed to the kind of intended selected um, result for that type of say, you know, territorial or property protection in the case of say guardians again, 
it's nice just to kind of buffer against the possibility, even if the dog doesn't act in a way that was undesirable, were they uncomfortable enough? And maybe that's even paving the way towards, you know, three months from now, he might actually step up to that plate and do something. Or then we're integrating it with our full picture of the dog's legs. So we look at the S piece, the internal conditions, we look at the age of the dog. It might be that until the dog hits social maturity, that stimulus is perceived um, as something I'm not going to step up to the plate towards. But as soon as the dog hits social maturity, all of a sudden, stepping up to the plate. Whereas if I'd known that as the person getting the guardian from the time that I acquired the guardian, I might've started with the dog on the other side of the baby gate from the day that I had people come over in the first place. So he always knew that it wasn't his job. He wasn't feeling uncomfortable, conflicted, and then suddenly felt like, oh no, you know, or not even felt like, I mean, that's an, that's an assumption or a projection. It, the dog experiences then the interaction between that event and then their genetic modal action patterns. Yeah. Yeah. This has been a fascinating conversation so far. And you mentioned the Functional Dog Collaborative, which we're going to talk more about in just a moment. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Hey, friends, it's me again. And I hope you are enjoying this episode. You may have figured out that something I deeply care about is helping dogs with aggression issues live less stressful, less confined, more enriched, and overall happy lives with their guardians. Aggression is so often misunderstood, and we can change that through continued education, like we receive from so many of the wonderful guests on this podcast. In addition to the podcast, I have two other opportunities for anyone looking to learn more about helping dogs with aggression issues, which include the Aggression in Dogs Master Course and the Aggression in Dogs Conference. If you want to learn more about the most comprehensive course on aggression taught anywhere in the world, head on over to aggressivedog.com and click on the Dog Pros tab and then the Master Course. The course gives you access to 23 modules on everything from assessment to safety to medical issues to the behavior change plans we often use in a number of different cases, including lessons taught by Dr. Chris Pockle, Kim Brophy, and Jessica Dolce. You'll also receive access to a private Facebook group with over a thousand of your fellow colleagues and dog pros all working with aggression cases. After you finish the course, you also gain access to private live group mentor sessions with me, where we work through practicing many different cases together. And if you need CEUs, we've got you covered. We're approved for just about every major training and behavior credential out there. This is truly the flagship course offered on aggression in dogs and is perfect for pet pros that want to set themselves apart and take their knowledge and expertise to the next level, or even for pet owners who are seeking information to help their own dog. And don't forget to join me for the third annual Aggression in Dogs Conference, either in person or online from Providence, Rhode Island on September 30th through October 2nd, 2022. This year's lineup includes many of the amazing guests you might have heard on the podcast, including Suzanne Clothier, Jen Shryock, Simone Mueller, Dr. Amber Batson, Kim Brophy, Karish Mawar, Laura Monaco Torelli, Dr. Simone Gadbois, and many more. Head on over to aggressivedog.com and click on the conference tab to learn more about the exciting agenda on everything from advanced concepts and leash reactivity to using positive reinforcement to work with predatory behavior. And I wanted to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors for the conference. As a family of world-class trainers, Fenzi Dog Sports Academy provides expert and accessible instruction for competitive dog sports using the most progressive training methods and positive reinforcement techniques. Through their online platform, students are able to access professional dog training no matter your location or pup's skill level. FDSA believes the bond between dog and human is a proud and life-changing partnership, and they'll work with you to develop a respectful and kind relationship with your furry best friend. Check out FDSA at FenzyDogSportsAcademy.com. All right, I'm back here with the amazing applied ethologist, Kim Brophy, and behavioral geneticist, Dr. Jessica Hetman. And we were talking about um, a lot before the break, but we I wanted to jump into Jessica's amazing project, the Functional Dog Collaborative, because it's so applicable to our conversation now. So Jessica, tell us more about that and, and how you kind of came about that and what it's about. Yeah. So it, I founded it in 2020 as my pandemic passion project. And I had been thinking for a while that there were groups of people breeding dogs in ways that are maybe not mainstream, but are still ethical, responsible, and the kinds of ways that I wanted to see encouraged, um, you know, people who are breeding dogs with the main goal of, of being pets and, and not 
being as concerned maybe with breeding two purebreds together uh, or people who are interested in outcrossing to increase genetic diversity. And I, I wanted to provide resources for them and I wanted to provide a place where they could find each other because I was seeing different groups doing some of these things and having trouble connecting to each other. And I thought they could really provide each other support. So the Functional Dog Collaborative basically started out as a, a Facebook group. It's the Functional Breeding Facebook group. And I encourage anyone who's interested to go join it and check it out. There's all, We have almost 10,000 people now, and it is a very active community uh, with a lot of good information about how to responsibly breed dogs, how to responsibly raise puppies and socialize puppies. It's a lot of breeders on it, but there's also a lot of dog trainers on it, a lot of people a lot of dog trainers, I think, came to it because they were having concerns about seeing increasing rates of behavior problems in puppies and wanted to talk about where dogs are coming from and how we can do better at producing dogs who are really good fits for family life. So we have a a bunch of other projects now that besides just the Facebook group. So we're building educational resources for breeders, educational resources for what we call puppy seekers um, to sort of help people navigate that really difficult ocean of how do you find the right breeder for you. And then um, also working on trying to put together a data platform for breeders to come to and share information. Thinking through all of the projects right now, we're in the middle of spinning up a social media project where we're going to hopefully be spitting out some sound bites for people to just get little little pieces of information out there to help people better understand um you know both the average person sort of understand what goes into breeding and raising a physically and behaviorally healthy puppy that it's not easy it's not uncomplicated um it is doable but there's a lot that goes into it also sort of helping spread the word among people who are already really in the dog world, that breeding purebreds is is great, but not the only way to go. And that there's a bunch of mixes that people are breeding that make really good pets or really good sports dogs. Sometimes not even just mixes of two breeds, sometimes more. Sometimes there's some really interesting breeding going on with people breeding multi-generational mixes, uh, lots of different breeds in there. And they're just really focusing on what can I do to make the best possible pet. And that's sort of a, it's a less mainstream way of breeding. It's not what the average person knows of as responsible breeding, but we're trying to sort of get the word out there that this is, uh, this is a great option for looking for your, your next good family dog. It's such an amazing resource and an incredible initiative because it's it's not an easy conversation either. I'm thinking about just how much you have to break the mold of what the standard, you know, and big air quotes there, or the culture of how we get dogs or breeding dogs that we've been so accustomed to and still is so pervasive to this day where, you know, people are just getting dogs for looks or for, you know, certain fashion accessory almost sometimes, and they're not thinking about all those other things. And and Kim and I have, have had this conversation many times about the difficulties getting that message out there. Because if you look at it, you know, you go to any shelter, what's the number one reason for the relinquishment of dogs to these shelters? It's behavior. And so there's a significant issue in this in this country and, of course, other countries around the world facing the same issues with, you know, dogs. We're not we're not breeding dogs for necessary the right purpose, at least if we're looking to prevent that issue. And so, Kim, I'd love to get a little more of your thoughts too on, on you know, I know we've we've talked about this in the past, but to add to what Jessica's uh, kind of doing now, where your thoughts go? Well, first of all, I love the Functional Dog Collaborative. When I found out that it was a thing, I was just like, this is amazing. This needed to be a thing for so long, and I didn't know it was a thing. And I'm so glad that that was your 2020-inspired um, project, Jessica, because, <laughs> um, you know, I remember years ago, I think Sue Sternberg at an APDT conference, it might have been even 10 years ago now, kind of planted this seed to a group of dog trainers whose chins were on the floor. I think she was presenting maybe with John Rogerson or something, and they were talking about um, how we shouldn't be spaying and neutering all of these really great dogs. Like if, if we find a dog that is coping really well in modern conditions and meeting the expectations of, you know, the average family with high resiliency and, you know, wonderful, flexible constitutions for a variety of the different kinds of situations we're planning on putting them in. 
let's not spay them or neuter them. Let's find them a date. Let's see what else <laughs> might be compatible for them. And that that was kind of sacrilege at the time that she brought it up. And it um, still is in a lot of it, places. It still is, I know. And 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 I think it's, you know, this is the whole thing. It seems like it's the theme of the day and the week and the month. Growth is uncomfortable, right? Having difficult conversations, evolving, adding different cows to that uh, sacred cow herd um, is, is important. So we can say, yes, spaying and neutering is still important. But, and we can say, you know, um, that uh, it's okay to say, you know what, I don't think we should spay or neuter this dog. It would be great if there was a filter system in shelters, you know, nationwide where we could, um, you know, have people's eyes and ears out for these gems that really need to be staying in the gene pool. Um, I've been emboldened by all of this uh, to tell my clients when they bring a fabulous, easy, flexible, resilient social dog to me, I say, please don't fix your dog. You know, and, and I, especially if I've gotten the chance to watch them for a year or two, I try to say, you know, like, well, I send them to FDC is what I do. And so half of them, I don't know what they're going to ultimately end up doing. And I, I think a lot of them don't want to get into breeding per se, but it's at least getting our culture thinking about this as an option, as you say, um, and not even just for pet conditions, right? Like that's where my mind goes. I'm not in the competitive world, but I also think Within um, the sport lines, uh, there's a lot to be learned by looking at ways to have um, highly competitive, successful candidates for the sport world uh, that are also more behaviorally healthy than maybe some of the things mm. that have been in the gene pool in the past. I love the idea of intentional crossbreeding. I am concerned that um, even the best breeds that we have in our gene pool today, um, the ones that have historically been coping better than others, um, because of the closed gene pools and the um, line breeding uh, that we're going to have increasing behavioral and physical medical problems, um, congenital issues. Uh, and and so there, there's a lot to flush out there, right? There's, there's a lot of things that we need to be thinking about and the work that you've done in a study like this is such an important element um, to, to figuring out what kinds of information might, need, might we be able to glean now from a study like this? And then down the road, what are some other things we might be able to glean that can help us improve our ability to do this? People ask me all the time because I, I do have a bias where I feel like, well, humans messed it up by putting our fingers in the pot in the first place. Nature's really good at selecting for function um, and what is adaptive. And I think humans, uh, not so much. Um, we know what we like and what we don't like. But the truth is, is that we nature can't fix this, really. Like, we're not just going to go and free all the dogs and then nature has its mechanism in order to solve this problem. It's not going to happen. So we have to figure out how to solve it through the same thing that got us into this mess in the first place through artificial selection. And so the more information we have, the better. The more creativity, the better. Yeah, it's I, I think that there's going to have to be a real revolution in how we deal with dog breeding. Mm -hmm. Just looking at the situation right now where, um, you know, time was that there was there were a lot of accidental litters and they either got placed locally or they sort of went through shelters and shelters were a good place to get puppies from. And shelters are not a large producer of puppies mm -hmm. um, at this point. And there are the, the people who are producing dogs in what I would sort of talk about sort of the mainstream responsible way, breeding dogs for show and then placing the non-show candidates as pets. And we can talk about whether that's even the best way of producing pets, but whether or not it is, those people are not a large proportion of the way we produce dogs. And I think there's a lack of knowledge about where puppies are coming from, but I am terrified to think that I think a large proportion of the puppies that are being produced are coming out of high volume facilities that are not giving careful thought to the genetics and are certainly not providing good early socialization, which is something you know, we've been talking a lot about genetics today. But when we talk about agonistic threshold or dogs who use aggression to deal with their, their issues, their fearfulness, then really what we need to be dealing with is producing dogs that are less fearful, which absolutely genetics has something to do with, but also socialization is just massively important. And so, mm. you know, having those dogs that are being produced in high volume, what I would call sort of a high volume, low animal welfare situation, um, and then sort of moving through the internet to find their home. I would just love to see, God, just, just as a start, 
just having more dogs produced in homes. You know, we talk about backyard breeders, uh, that's sort of a derogatory term, but when you compare it to uh, a dog that's not born in a home, just being born in a home and growing up inside and getting to see what indoors is like and that people come to visit, that is such a huge step forward. That's such a, a huge piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole puzzle, but it's such a big step forward. Yeah. So I just, I feel like we need to to figure out a way to to be able to produce the number of dogs that this country wants, but in homes. Um, I, I'd and love with people to, who are doing it thoughtfully. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think to make it even more complicated, um, you know, new research is coming out all the time with other species that's helping us appreciate the complexity of exactly what you're describing. A study just came out about um, the loss of neurological plasticity in fish that are, you know, living in captivity and particularly lines of fish. So they actually were looking at lines of captive bred fish. I forget the name of them. They're the ones that glow. I don't remember the name of them off the top of my mm-hmm. head um, versus um, wild lines of the same species. And the difference between the neurological plasticity was mm. profound. And it makes sense because, you know, the discussion of the, the research was, you know, well, neurological plasticity is very expensive, right? And it, it, it costs a lot to kind of maintain that flexibility to circumstances. So if there's no need for it, you're going to lose it. You know, nature's very yeah. economical that way. And so it makes sense that the lines of dogs coming from these like high number breeding facilities, puppy mills, et cetera, with the higher measure of captivity, lower level of stimulation, Mm -hmm. it might not even just be that that particular puppy is going to be less plastic because of that experience, but it could even be that there's a whole generation, a lineage of an increasing loss of plasticity over time. It it just begs all kinds of really serious, important questions. Um, and, And we'd need to be looking at all of them for sure. Man, I'd love to do that research. <laughs> right? Yes. Find, do find the funding. I'm going to find you the funding. We're, we're gonna, we've got to figure yeah. this out. Yeah. So I have a kind of a devil's advocate question for Jessica. So let's say somebody comes to you and is like, this all sounds great, but didn't you just say that genetics isn't all that matters? So how can we be sure we're going to be breeding? We take a, um, a pair of dogs that are just so their personality is wonderful and we want to reproduce that. But how do you answer the question how do we know that that's going to happen or what happens if the opposite occurs? You know, uh, what is your response to that kind of statement? Yeah. Um, I mean, breeding is incredibly complicated and there are a lot of big decisions that go into it. So you're taking a dog that you're going to breed and you take two dogs that you're going to breed and you know that they're really nice dogs. It's really... It's additionally nice if you also know that they had nice parents and that their siblings were nice. That helps a lot to tell you how much of that is genetics. Although I was actually just yesterday or the day before having a conversation with a breeder who said, you know, well, you say that, Jessica, but how much how much evidence do we have that that just sort of looking at the at the lines gives you that much information? It's actually hard to know in any purebred or mixed breed, was the mother of this dog really nice? I, I asked her breeder if she was really nice, and the breeder said yes. Does is the breeder answering all of the questions that I really, you know, have I asked all of the questions? Does the breeder mean the same thing by really nice? Is the breeder sort of thinking that it's not a big deal that the dog chased the mailman and bit him every day? <laughs> um, you know, so that information is nice to have, but I think it's also important to sort of put it in context of of what it really, you know, of how reliable it is and what it can really mean. But I think that's the best we can do is take two dogs who seem to be nice, breed them, and then socialize the heck out of the puppies. And I'm not 100% sure exactly what the angle of your question is, Mike, but I think a lot of people do come to me and say, but we really know what we're getting when we breed two purebreds. And when you breed two mixed breeds, anything can happen. Mm. And I have a couple answers to that, which is, first of all, honestly, a lot can happen when you breed two purebreds as well. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's a lot of sort of, you know, oh, well, all, all golden retrievers are really nice dogs. And that's not true. There's a lot of golden retrievers who have, you know, guarding issues or anxiety issues. And 
just because the the breed is sort of that the goal for the breed is to have these super friendly, super sociable dogs doesn't mean that they all are. Doesn't mean that if you take two really nice golden retrievers, that there's not going to be something weird that shows up mm-hmm. in that litter. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you do breed two mixed breed dogs and something different shows up in the litter, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's because they're not purebred. I'd say it's because they're living creatures and yeah. breeding living creatures can you know, there can be surprises. The other thing I'd say is that, you know, there's a lot of other trade-offs for breeding purebreds, which, you know, Kim and I have been talking about this decreasing genetic diversity mm-hmm. correlated to increasing health problems. And that's something important to take into consideration as well, that that's something that we can't just keep going the way we've been going. Mm-hmm. Um, not just even that the stud books are closed, but that then you have a litter of of show dogs and you say, well, maybe one or two of these from this litter are going to be appropriate to show and therefore breed. And the rest we're going to spay, neuter, and place as pets. And maybe they do fabulous as pets, but they're not show dogs. So we're not going to breed them. And that really cuts down mm-hmm. on genetic diversity that each litter, very few of the dogs are bred. So God, I, I guess I, you know, I, I hopefully that answers yeah. your question. I've been babbling. Can for a I while add there. a little just just to make yes. that, you know, more painfully complicated? One of the things that I think about <laughs> is that when we're breeding for consistency, right? So you talk about like we know going back six generations on both sides, these dogs are friendly, 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 and they're, you know, we've got wonderful lines, very well tracked, very consistent. There's a tipping point in there where the consistency itself is lending itself to such a compromised level of genetic diversity Mm. that you're going to start having problems, not just, you know, physically, but also behaviorally. Um, You know, one of the things that I've, I've thought about a lot, particularly with like the golden retrievers is like what happens when pedomorphism or neoteny reaches such extremes that they become crippled by anxiety because there, that that the the flip side of the juvenile flexibility is that you know I I do I ever fully get into my comfortable own adult skin like or mm. or are some of those dogs you know I I just anecdotally have observed how many of the same dogs that are um, exceedingly friendly are also seem to be prone to things like you know uh, lick granulomas um, and uh, separation anxiety and. Mm. Um, sound phobia and things like that. Now that's all just completely, you know, hypothesizing in my mind, but, but it would make sense, I guess, right. Is that that could be an unwanted side effect of breeding for this extreme friendliness is that we also have an extreme sensitivity that goes with it. I mean, these are things we don't have the answers to. They're just things to think about, but I do think there's a danger to getting so much consistency that you've lost your diversity too. Yeah, that's interesting. I had never thought of that hypothesis before, and now I want to now I want to study it. Yeah, no, I think exactly. I think that when you look at populations in nature, this is something that uh, population geneticists have have noticed for a while and sort of been interested in is that a particular population might be well adapted to a particular environment, you know, the particular area where that population lives, but there's always some animals in the population that show some different traits, mm-hmm. and it turns out long-term that that's beneficial Mm -hmm. um, over evolutionary time because the area where this population of animals lives may be fairly stable for several generations, but then something happens, right? New predators come in or there's a change in the landscape or there's a change in the weather or there's a change in the food availability. And all of a sudden, those small number in the population who were the outliers and were not Mm -hmm. super well adapted, all of a sudden, those guys are the ones who are very well adapted to the Mm -hmm. new landscape. And they're genetic material will suddenly start spreading. And so it's a way that the population keeps itself able to adapt, that if 100% of the animals were perfectly adapted to the existing environment, they would be very inflexible when the environment changes. And I think that's something that's important for us to remember, that it is not healthy for a population to be more and more homogeneous, Mm -hmm. because the population has to be able to adapt to changing times. And with 
dogs, I would say the times are certainly changing for dogs and the kinds of home environments that dogs find themselves in are changing right now, definitely compared to how they were 20, 40 years ago. And that's an important thing for us to think about too, right? If we've got the rate of environmental change as fast as it is right now in the 21st century, we almost need to be trying to anticipate looking forward. You know, here we've introduced a metaverse to our reality. Like, is that going to become a really big thing? Are people literally going to be spending any large volumes of their days any more than we already are doing nothing but staring at a screen and not not even (laughs) having available eye contact with their dogs because they're in virtual reality. I mean, I don't know. None of us know. We can't predict the future. But, you know, breeding for, I guess, the environmental conditions, if natural selection can't take the wheel and it falls on us to use the tools of artificial selection to try to help our dogs be better adapted to the modern conditions and expectations, then we need to have the filter, one of the kind of global filters for, for all breeding, to, you know, whether that be for pet homes or sport homes or working homes, um, to be, are, are they coping well with these conditions? And then also recognize that if they are put in conditions that are very different from the conditions for which they were selected. So you take a dog that was bred to be a highly successful working or sport candidate and you put them in a pet home, they might do very poorly in those conditions because in a kind of mirror example to what you talked about with the population genetics, they aren't well adapted genetically to those conditions because that wasn't our target, right? So if we're the ones doing the choosing instead of nature, then we need to really be thinking it's not that we're just creating these global good dogs, you know, of one breed or another. They might be good in one set of conditions and terribly dysfunctional in a set of another. Yeah, I think, you know, we talk about labels and defining things and everybody feels like they know what good means. Um, <laughs> but I think it's it's definitely worth thinking through what good means to you and what your goals are and how good is actually not a really useful label. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. <laughs> I use it. It's funny. I use it. You know, I give a talk like where will the good dogs come from? But then I always start out the talk by being like, so what do I mean by a good dog? You know, right. what are our assumptions where we assume that the default is that the dog will be basically healthy and basically interested in interacting with us and basically happy to have guests come over to the house. And those are those should not be default assumptions. Those should be things that you ask about. Such a good point. Because when you think about it, they just think about aggressive behavior. You know, in most people's minds, they're thinking bad, you know, bad. But actually, it can be good, right? When, yeah. when we want it to be. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody breaks into our home and the dog barks and lunges at that person. Mm-hmm. You know, that's good for mm-hmm. us, yeah. right? And it's all, it's all how we kind of view it. And we have to remember that aggressive responses are quite normal in our repertoires as really any species mm-hmm. for safe, our own safety and our own preservation. So yeah, fascinating, fascinating. This has been such an amazing conversation. Can we keep Jessica here for that 48 hours we were talking about yeah. before? <laughs> Since oh, we've got I'm going to need down. to like, go have lunch, maybe take, <laughs> take a nap at some point. <laughs> so I'm going to wrap it up there, but I do want to hear what you guys are up to next. So Kim, what are you up to these days and where can people find you? So people can find me either at dogdoorbehaviorcenter.com. That's our little local company here for behavior consulting. And then they can also find us at our new website for our um, educational platform, familydogmediation.com. We have just released the public facing distilled one hour version of the big 30 hour professional legs applied ethology family dog mediation course. And that's very exciting because um, we have been really trying to figure out a way to make the information of legs and all of these complicated questions and considerations available to the public. Wonderful. And Jessica, how about you? Uh, Functional Dog Collaborative is the is my big project right now. So you can check that out at functionalbreeding.org. Um, so there's that Facebook group is a good way to get started. There's also the Functional Breeding Podcast, which I'm recovering from a brain injury. So the podcast was on hiatus for a while and I'm in the sort of the middle of spinning it back up. So there's uh, a whole bunch of, of older episodes, which I encourage people to listen to and uh, and don't don't feel like that's all there is because it there will it will it will return soon. And uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that I have just finished writing a sort of lay accessible summary of the paper that we've been talking about in this episode, and it should be published on functionalbreeding.org in the next couple of days. So certainly by the time this podcast comes out, it should be published. Uh, Mike, can I get you the URL and you could put that in the show notes? Maybe? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so that's, all those links. that would be the best way for, for people to find that. 
And for those who are interested in following, getting on my mailing list to know when I'm going to be giving webinars and things like that, because I do do that stuff, go to dogzombie.com. The joke is that I like dog brains, so I am a dog zombie. (laughs) Um, Go there. You can get on my mailing list and find out when I'm going to be presenting next. Excellent. Thank you guys so much. And really for both of you are revolutionizing the dog behavior and dog industry in general, dog community as well. So I really want to thank you both for doing that. And thank you for coming on the show and having this amazing conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mike, for having us. I can't express enough how grateful I am to both Kim and Jessica for jumping on this episode with me and clearing up some of the misconceptions around the study and for totally geeking out on dog behavior. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to AggressiveDog.com for more information about helping dogs with aggression. From the Aggression in Dogs Master Course to webinars from world-renowned experts and even an annual conference, we have both options for pet pros and pet owners to learn more about aggression in dogs. Thanks for joining me for the bitey end of the dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to aggressivedog.com or the looseleashacademy.com for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences, all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues. And don't forget, the Aggression in Dogs conference will be happening from October 22nd to 24th with 12 amazing speakers, all streaming from a television studio in Chicago. It's going to be a truly unique event in 2021.